Scaling innovation. Innovation fails, sometimes spectacularly so. It's hard enough when that failure comes early on, during the startup phase. That brilliant idea which somehow isn't quite as brilliant when it collides with the first few encounters with the market. And when no amount of pivoting is going to save it. It's hard, but it's a matter of squeezing it for useful lessons for the future and then throwing it in the bin. Chalk it up to experience and try again. But what happens when you've gone much further down the road? When you've put in the hard yards, prototyping, pivoting, finally launching. And when your early efforts seem to have yielded success. When it does seem as if people value whatever it is you've created from your idea. Well, you could just relax. Take the small bouquets which come from succeeding at something. Those plaudits from family and friends. But most likely you'll recognise that nice staging post though it is you're really only halfway along the journey. Because for your idea to have real impact, you're going to need to scale it. And that's where a whole new set of challenges come into the frame. Scaling isn't an easy ride, even for experienced innovators. Take the case of Toshiba, certainly not a new kid on the block, but a respected innovator over nearly 150 years. Not just a one-hit wonder either. Its success pedigree includes light bulbs, memory chips, video recorders, TV sets and DVD equipment. They certainly understand the challenges of bringing innovations to scale. For example, they're credited with bringing the notebook computer to a mass market with their 1100 series. And yet, they lost out big time in their attempt to put high-definition DVD into play losing the standards battle to Sony and its Blu-ray system and around a billion dollars in the process. Or look at Clive Sinclair, one of the creators of the personal computer revolution whose ZX family of machines spawned a generation of programmers and helped move the technology to the mainstream. Despite his success with computers, millions of units sold worldwide he managed to fail very publicly with his later venture, the C5 electric vehicle. And on the subject of electromobility, it's worth looking at the case of Better Place. Launched in 2007, its charismatic founder, Shai Agassi, managed to persuade the chairman of Renault-Nissan and ex-Israeli Prime Minister Simon Perez to back his venture as well as attracting over $200 million in startup funds, the largest ever for its time. Take a look at his impassioned TED talk from 2009, and it's hard not to be convinced by a man with the mission to make the world a better place through electromobility. And yet, within nine years, the company had burned through its cash and much more besides, and spectacularly failed. One more casualty on the road to scaling innovation. They aren't alone. In fact, there's a wonderful Museum of Failure located in Sweden which showcases failures from some of the biggest business names in the world. It has over a hundred exhibits and you can bet there are many more in the world outside which haven't yet made it onto their displays. The underlying premise of the museum isn't to ridicule these companies, but rather to show that we can learn from failure. 
Those companies behind the Museum of Failure exhibits remained successful because they absorbed the costly lessons and revised their innovation management models. Scaling isn't just a commercial challenge. If anything, it matters even more to social innovators. When you want to change the world, it's important to reach scale. If you're trying to reduce infant mortality with a new vaccine, you want it to reach every sick child in the world. If you're trying to eradicate malnutrition with a better farming method to increase yield, you want to do this everywhere. This quest for scale is what drives pioneering social innovators like Dr. Venkataswamy, whose Aravind eye care system has meant that over 12 million people in the world can see who would otherwise have gone blind. Or Devi Shetty, striving to bring healthcare within reach of India's poor through innovation. Or Washington Carver, who spent his life trying to diffuse better farming methods to the rural poor in the United States. But this is a sector plagued by what could be called pilotitis. Plenty of great ideas which get as far as pilot launch, but then fail to scale. Too Tough to Scale is the title of a helpful research report which explores the roadblocks on the journey and reminds us that changing the world requires a lot more than just a great solution. And it's the same story in the public sector. There's no shortage of wonderful experiments which improve quality, efficiency, service levels, but too often they remain local islands of change. What's needed, once again, is this ability to take them to scale. So, scaling is hard, but it matters. Now, it's worth pausing for a moment to think about how we might scale our innovation, because we have at least three choices. We can scale up, make the solution bigger, reach more of the market. We can scale out, spreading the idea to reach different people, extending the geography we cover or the sectors we address. And we can scale deep, building a platform around our core innovation. Now, importantly, these aren't mutually exclusive. Netflix began by building its subscriber base in the USA, essentially scaling up. Then it extended geographically, scaling out. And these days, it's become a platform player, scaling deep, creating content to deliver across its streaming network, as well as running the network. Or Lego, which has built a platform of storytelling, books and movies after first building its bricks business and then internationalizing it. But whatever the scaling target, we need to recognize that the journey to scale isn't going to be an easy one. The good news is we're not the first to make it. There's plenty of experience on which to draw and from which we can tease out useful lessons. And three things stand out if we're preparing to embark on such a journey. It takes time, so we're going to need a strategy for scaling. It takes complementary assets and systems thinking. And adoption by the market follows an S-curve, so understanding what affects this will help us accelerate towards scale. So let's look at each of these in a little more detail. New ideas often take a long time to have impact. Think about the bicycle. It was invented around 1817 by Baron von Dreis, who certainly had a clear vision for what he was trying to achieve, affordable personal transportation for everyone. But it took another 60 years to make that dream a reality. 
or the experience of Frederick Tudor, the Ice King of Boston, who pioneered the global ice industry in the 19th century. His first unsuccessful voyage in 1806 took a shipload of ice to Cuba, where its frosty reception had nothing to do with the product in his ship's hold. It took another ten years, all his family's money and a spell in debtor's prison, before he finally succeeded in creating an industry which in its heyday was cutting and shipping close to a million tonnes of ice every year. Innovation timescales can remain stubbornly long, even as technology life cycles shorten. For example, in the field of humanitarian aid, the idea of giving people money instead of food can be traced back to experiments in the early 1980s. But it took another 20 years before this moved to the mainstream. And even then it took the impact of the dreadful 2004 tsunami to kickstart the diffusion to scale. So, if it's going to take a while to move to scale, then you'll need to do more than just pat your innovation on the head and send it on its way. You need a strategy, a long-term plan for how this is going to happen. Now, the second point refers to systems thinking. And a key question which needs to be asked early is what or who else do you need to help you bring your innovation to scale? Because going it alone is not an option. There are simply too many different bases to cover. You need what are technically called complementary assets. Think about the challenge in remote retailing. You might see the potential in providing a service for those people who can't or won't visit shops. Your solution is to bring the shop to them. It's a good idea, but to make it work, you need to assemble a lot of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and make them work. Advertising your remote storefront, capturing and processing orders, arranging for stock to be available, and storage and distribution, handling logistics over a large area, and very important, managing cash flow so you don't sit on lots of stock but manage to get paid for it up front. Now, working all that out was almost certainly part of Jeff Bezos's thought process in setting up his Amazon empire. But in fact, it's a model which predates him by almost a century. Messrs. Sears and Roebuck pioneered the idea of remote retailing via their mail-order catalogue. And theirs wasn't a single component innovation, they built a system. And they were smart enough to recognise they didn't need to own or control everything as long as they could orchestrate it and coordinate it. So major manufacturers, financiers and other players came into the ecosystem tent, all sharing in the value creation. Scaling innovation needs this kind of systems thinking identifying and then configuring the value network we need, the additional players who will make up our system, and then developing the working relationships with them so that the whole system can create value. Something which George Templer understood when he had the brilliant idea of selling the granite rocks on Dartmoor, in the southwest of England, to the builders erecting the new, for its time, London Bridge in 1824. The stone was perfect for the task, and the builders were prepared to pay top dollar for it. The only challenge to this great entrepreneurial idea was in getting the rocks out of the ground, down a long, steep hillside, and then on the 200-mile journey to London.
He solved the problem in ingenious fashion, laying a stone tramway down the hillsides to a canal which he dug at sea level to connect to a local river. This allowed him to reach the port of Tynmouth, from where the stones could be shipped around to London and the bridge built. The bridge still survives to this day, uh, albeit now in the Arizona desert, where it was transshipped stone by original stone. But Templar's successful scaling of an idea owed everything to his ability to build a system and engage many different complementary stakeholders in its co-creation and operation. Such systems thinking is what makes the difference between a good idea and one which has significant impact. Thomas Edison's name may be forever associated with the light bulb, but he spent a significant proportion of his time working out the rest of the system into which you could plug it, creating the General Electric Company along the way with its interests in generation, distribution and devices to consume electric power. And this same approach, building an ecosystem, was what really lay behind Apple's success with the iPod. While the device was well-designed and elegant, it was the network behind the scenes, the negotiation of digital rights and royalty arrangements with the major music providers which paved the way for a portable music revolution, built on iTunes. And this also laid the infrastructure across which the wider smartphone ecosystem built on the iPhone now operates. And it was here that Toshiba misstepped in its journey to scale with high-definition DVD. It understood about ecosystems, tried to build one, but its choice of partners, including Microsoft, and its inability to get major film studios involved led to it losing out to Sony. Now, the third piece of this scaling puzzle has to do with understanding the S-curve. And here we need to look at the market, the demand side for our innovation. Because unless users make the decision to adopt and do so in large numbers, we won't succeed. So understanding them and getting them on board will be critical to scaling. People don't simply accept changes. Instead, there's a pattern in which some are enthusiastic early adopters, while others may take a long while to make up their minds. Whether we're talking about toothpaste or high-technology machinery, the same pattern will emerge, and it takes the form of an S-curve. Understanding this and what shaped it was the life's work of Everett Rogers, and his model offers us some powerful clues about adoption. He saw it in terms of a communication process involving an innovator broadcasting a message, the innovation, to a receiver, the adopter, and doing so under different conditions, the environment. And he picked apart key dimensions of each of these which might influence adoption. His insights give us plenty to work with. For example, people aren't all the same. Some are much more willing to try new things out, and so working with early adopters can help as we develop and refine our solution. But adoption is also a social process. We tend to follow what others do, and we're heavily influenced by key people, opinion leaders, and people we perceive as being like us, and therefore whose judgments we trust. That was critical to the success of an otherwise great product which failed to diffuse despite its significant performance advantages. 
When Earl Tupper launched his brightly coloured plastic storage containers in 1947, he expected people to jump at the product idea, especially with its clever patented seal. But sales stayed stubbornly low. Until he engaged the services of Brownie Wise, a single mother with a gift for sales. She pioneered the idea of social marketing, running demonstrations in people's homes which became enjoyable social events and a safe place to explore new ideas. Tupperware parties still remain the dominant model for selling this product very successfully nearly a hundred years later. Something else to bear in mind is that different people perceive the characteristics of an innovation the message in this communication model, they perceive this in different ways. Whether or not our innovation is the best thing since the invention of sliced bread isn't the issue. It's how others perceive it which matters. Which was a hard-won lesson for the inventor of sliced bread, Otto Rohrwedder. He nearly went bankrupt trying to persuade local bakers to adopt his bread-slicing machine. Perhaps not surprisingly, they didn't see much advantage in it. In fact, it added complexity. It took time to set up and run, generally got in their way. He eventually persuaded, by giving away half the equity in his company, a local baker to try it. And the real market of users loved the product. They saw such benefit in the increased convenience in their busy lives that sales increased by 2,000% in the first two weeks and kept on doing so. The concept took off like wildfire. Within five years, 80% of bread in the United States was sold ready sliced. So, if we want to scale our innovation, it's probably worth reverse engineering some of the factors in this model and using that as a checklist for accelerating adoption. Now, once we move beyond the pilot stage, we lose control of our innovation. We might still be able to influence it, and there are some things we can certainly take in hand. But, as we've seen, scaling involves a complex ecosystem, and its emergence is going to be a matter of co-evolution. We can't control everything, but we can work hard to pick up early warning of the ways in which things are moving and then adapt our approach. Those skills we learned right at the startup and the agile approach which underpinned developing our idea are going to be even more useful as we move to scale. Mm-hmm.